Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me is the cheese-obsessed ice maiden Thea Lenarducci. Hello. Hello. Thea, this week on one of the days when you were, and I do mean this in inverted commas, working from home, I wandered around the office looking for dirt on you. I did. I talked to about six people. And so I need something to say to Thea at the opening of the podcast. I've must... run out of things to say to her. Well, I'm not, I'm not run out, but I thought <laughs> I'd like some further filth on you. And everyone was like, oh, no, we can't. We can't tell you, tell you anything. A, there is nothing. Yeah. B, they have known me longer than, than they have known you. True. Loyalty their, loyal, is, their loyalty is, is definitely with you. Yeah. yeah, I found that a bit upsetting. But never mind. Uh, <laughs> speaking of disgrace, we were looking for reviews of this show on iTunes that adapted literary classics. And we didn't really get any usable ones. So the challenge remains out there. But here is an older review from the past, which we've not mentioned before, which is a lovely one. Are you ready, Thea? Mm -hmm. Stig and Thea have made me a better parent. My toddler would know nothing without them. And now he asks me to read him Pablo Neruda poems. He's precocious that way. Thank you, Steve Brooks of Arizona. Charming. Do you believe that? <laughs> I do, yeah, I do. Do you? Okay, I think I so. Uh, next week, though, the challenge <laughs> is to review the podcast on iTunes in any literary style, and we will have to guess which one. We'll play Spot the Pastiche. So do review us there, and we will uh, read out the best ones. This week, just how human are animals? When we are not around, are they busy bitching and squabbling, forming complex hierarchies and indulging in whimsical activities? Or is such speculation simply a reflection of our need to anthropomorphise them? The lead essay this week is Jenny Erin-Smith and she will introduce us into a world of charming cows and necrophiliac penguins. Speaking of necrophiliac penguins... Just kidding, there's no possible segue from that. We shall instead be talking about Cormac McCarthy, one of my favourite authors. In the studio will be fellow aficionado and Top Gun superfan, although we're not allowed to mention that, George Berridge, who has reviewed some criticism of McCarthy. And is there any point of talking about literature on the internet? God, I hope so. Jennifer Howard will give us hope or despair later on.
One of the compelling things about spending time with an animal is looking into its eyes and wondering what it is thinking. In the case of my dog Biscuit, I fear that the answer is very little, but I could be wrong. This week, Jenny Erin Smith reviews a number of books united by their desire to enter into the consciousness of non-human creatures. When someone like Rosamund Young in her Secret Lives of Cows depicts her subjects as expressing such complex cognitive states as bafflement, gratitude or feigned ignorance, such attributed behaviour, according to Smith, can be hard to separate cleanly from her imagination or ours. Young, after all, names her cows after poets, royals, clergy and emperors. It would surely be too easy to ascribe a certain malign eccentricity, say, to young Caligula chewing the cud thoughtfully over there, or a lugubrious passive aggression to yonder larkin. Yet there seems to be something approaching consensus that animals have a lot more going inside their little heads than hitherto imagined. Peter Rolenben's book, The Inner Life of Animals, contains musings on the feelings of mice suddenly attacked by rampaging martins on a violent binge. As Smith notes, biologists have always had to navigate between reading too much into an animal's actions and chalking up everything to conditioning or instinct, and the pendulum seems to be swinging back towards the recognition of an ever-richer range of emotional experience. Tradition also plays a part in how animal behaviour is judged. Beavers were seen, insanely in retrospect, as self-castrating and thus models for a monastic life of renunciation. Even as late as the 1990s, the behaviour of penguins was sentimentalised as noble and self-sacrificing. Smith quotes one book in stern rebuttal, a penguin will have sex with the frozen head of a dead compatriot if it must which is shocking. Perhaps our desire to know animals is more than simple whimsy. Anthropomorphism is a hardwired compulsion and not merely a sentimental expression, an evolutionary hangover from a time when we needed to domesticate beasts for our own ends. The most shocking line in the whole article is this, cats and dogs don't make us better people. Nobody tell that to Biscuit, please. Jenny Erin Smith joins Thea and me now. Jenny, welcome to you. Hi, Stig. How are you? Very good. And this is fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, why do you think there has been and probably continues to be such a slew of books about the hidden life or the inner life or the secret life of animals? Well, I think one of the books that explained it best. So in in this entire, in this series of six books that I reviewed, I felt that one book seemed to contain the clue to it all. And that was the book by John Bradshaw, who has, uh, who is a specialist in a field that he's titled Anthrozoology, or someone else calls Anthrozoology, I'd never heard of the field, um, that specifically looks at the relations of humans and domestic animals. Yeah. And what what I loved so much about this book was its in was its ability to sort of cut through sentimental interpretations of our relationships with the animals that are closest to us. And I, I, I sort of used it as a guide um, to, to inform the rest of the review. And the interesting thing about Bradshaw is that he spent his whole life in the world of animal welfare, in effect. He's a scientist attempting to inform questions of animal welfare. And yet, it takes an incredibly skeptical view of claims that I think that we've come to internalize. Uh, for example, that like, as you just mentioned that, uh, you know, having a dog or cat doesn't necessarily make you a better person. It doesn't necessarily being violent to an animal as a young person doesn't necessarily make you a violent adult. 
Um, but they do. Does it not indicate uh, an ability or a lack of ability to empathize or to care for? Or it, it, does it not show those sort think, of qualities? Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think. I think one would assume so. And I think anybody, if you know, if you had a child who was abusing an animal, you'd be concerned. But the statistics don't necessarily bear out that people become sociopaths or criminals if they've abused animals as a child. And yet public policy in the UK and elsewhere does um, actually give a nod to to this. So I think what we need is a sort of a distancing. Um, and does <laughs> and that, sort of a very, yeah. Does that happen in these books? Because let's, let's look at the other end, look at Rosamund Young's book, The Secret Life yeah. of Cows, which is was, was a massive bestseller and it's been reissued. Yes. Um, yes. Do you buy that? Do you buy that these, these cows sort of Comp, you know, scheming away and demonstrating individual att- attributes, or, or where, where do you? Th- yeah, you, yeah, you I do buy, buy it. I do buy it, and I think that uh, I think that Young is absolutely onto something, in the sense that you know you have a woman who's been around cows since her parents started the farm in the 1950s, so she's very well positioned to observe these animals and to see things that other people can't see, and I think that you know, and, and the same way with the forester. Uh, the German forester Peter Wolleben, who 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 did his book on forest animals, you can't discount the field hours of observation that people like Rosamund Young and and Peter Wolleben have put in. The question is, when it gets to incur- interpreting really complex behaviors, do we trust those interpretations? And what does and what what follows if we do? I mean, what what's the point? What's the point <laughs> of all of this? Is it to say? that we shouldn't eat them because they're they're more like us than we might imagine? Or is it just that we should respect their individuality more and therefore there's even more of a moral case against intensive farming? Well, you know, in the case of young, it's very interesting because, of course, those cows do get eaten. And um, it's the one thing in her book that she avoided discussing, which is really a shame. Yeah. Uh, because she talked about, you know, the subjective cow experience that she imagined it giving birth to motherhood, to being cow anti, but somehow when it came time to discuss what ca- how cows behave and or feel as they're being led to slaughter, she just didn't address the question at all. And it's a question of great interest um, in the animal rights community, obviously. So that was a cop out. Um, and I'm not. I'm not sure why. I'd like her to. Rip, I'd like her to do a piece or to. We should get her to do uh, that. Do we? a sequel. You know, really, really talking about that. But the second half of your question, well, so to answer that, I, I, I don't know if we should eat them or not, but I do think that there is, um, there's something to be said for the fact that <clears throat> when you take away factory farming, you are able to observe a bigger range of behaviors in animals than you're, you're commonly observing. What sorts of behaviors what? does she observe then? I mean, are we well, talking, you so, know, grief or... Yeah, she makes much of choice. So, the, for example, that uh, two cows will not prefer the same stream. One likes a, a, a muckier stream and the other heads to clear water, you know, at the top of a, a berm or something. So the, the, there, there are all kinds of individual behavior patterns and choices that, that she can observe in her cows. And I'm not sure that should come as a shock to any of us, but maybe it's a greater level of individualism um, that she, she sees. When cows are sick, for example, they seek out uh, medicinal plants, assuming they have the pasture available to them to do that, and, um, and do they seek solace from one another? Do they? Do yeah, they? They yeah. sort of 
they they tend to each other is that i mean and is this taking us into the question of whether they have i hate to sort of bring this but why not uh, whether they have souls whether they uh, have a sort of equivalent internal experience to humans well i think that's the question that all of these writers really want to get at um and i think that all of them maybe with the exception of bradshaw are disposed to seeing it so not one of the books in this series mentioned the idea of an animal soul i don't think anyone dares go there but they're really more focused on animal agency yeah. You know, but what's what's behind the animal agency? What what why are the behaviors in within a single species, a single group of animals, not necessarily the same? Might we take this opportunity just on a bit of yeah. a tangent to uh, rehabilitate the poor hyena? I mean, what happened there? Because in a sense, <laughs> in a sense, yeah. the the case of the hyena shows how observation leads to it being picked up by religion, leads to it becoming, uh, you know, something that we just believe. So this this is an interesting question that was um, brought forth in the book by Lucy Cook, which was, if I may be honest, a much better book than I expected. Yeah. Um, I, I I sort of expected a, a you know TV in book form. Well, the title, uh, with, the, the unexpected truth about animals, is, which is the unexpected yeah. truth about animals, which actually had a very coherent argument. Um, in a pattern that she showed uh, occurred again and again which is that you had an early natural history observer, um, in many cases it was Aristotle, who, you know, who, who wrote down, in the interest of a sort of distance observation, a sort of disinterested, I mean, observation, um, some trait of an animal. And in the case of the hyena, Aristotle had a theory that its, its heart, the size of a, an animal's heart relative to its body, indicated how brave it was. So I'm not sure if, if Aristotle got this hyena by dissection, <laughs> you ever, if you ever saw one alive, which, which is possible. Um, but at any rate, the animal was classed in the category of cowards. So that, that observation sort of made it into the, into the Middle Ages um, and was picked up by bestiary writers who, who also, know, also noted something else that was of interest of, about the hyena, which is that females have what looks like a penis. So we have the hyena as hermaphrodite and coward, mm. uh, which led to extreme interpretations of its behavior by the, the bestiary writers. It was a pervert. It, uh, it didn't like to hunt because of its cowardice, so it hung around sepulchers and, and ate dead bodies and that sort of thing. So this grew into sort of a, a Christianized uh, fantasy of <clears throat> behavior that was to be avoided. It, it was seized on as allegory. But the very interesting thing was that when natural history re-entered a more objective phase in, in the 18th century, it was very difficult to shake. People, people like Linnaeus, for example, found it very difficult to shake the received wisdom about the hyena from what they were observing about its behavior. So, and it's still ideas, and it's still there in Lion King. I mean, it's in, all the way back up to the 1990s. It's in the Lion King, isn't it? The hyenas are the snarling, cowardly. You know, if anyone stands up to them, they slink away. Character. Yeah. So in that case, the the rumor or the slander, if you will, about the hyena being a coward uh, lasted even longer than I realized because Cook's book had it lasting into the 1960s into in uh, texts on mammals. 
but if if what you're saying is correct, it's it's actually lasted up until the current moment, well. which is incredible. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really Look, incredible. Tr- trust me to bring in the highbrow. Although the liking is actually based on Hamlet, is a is a relatively highbrow. But, but actually, I think it's more than that. Though. I think if we polled ten people in the street and said hyena to them. They would say dirty, mm. slinking, cowardly animal, wouldn't mm. they? I mean, like, from the I would laugh. say females have a penis. That would be the first thing that <laughs> you would you would startle the hell. I, I, I'd love to I'd love to see that survey. What do you think of hyenas? The women have penises. That would be brilliant. That would be absolutely brilliant. Um, what benefit do we get though? So leaving aside the sort of historical untruth, yeah. when we try to understand animals' lived experience. Uh-huh. Do we benefit as a species ourselves? Do we benefit as individuals? Is there a, is there a purpose to all of this? Well, yeah, I think I don't know if we benefit. I, and I, I, I maybe the premise of the question is that we we somehow benefit in a concrete way, benefit in terms of our health. I, I'm not sure that we benefit. And I think that the John Bradshaw book, which I think is the sort of a must read for people interested in these questions, established not so much that we're benefiting from from attempting to enter into the conscious consciousness of an animal but in fact indulging something that may be hardwired into our our own behavior and into our our own brains i was recently at a museum in bogota colombia the gold museum which shows the artifacts of a number of pre-columbian societies most of whom have lost all these traditions and what was astounding to me looking at it after having read this series of books was how much shamanistic traditions indulge in the idea of trying to transform into an animal to the point where you know the gold icon would show a priest upturning his nose with a sort of you know a sort of chain or, or or some sort of adornment and changing his ears to resemble a bat so the idea that we wish to transform into animals we wish to think like they think we wish to anthropomorphize we wish to share in some element of their consciousness. I think that really goes back to uh, the, the dawn of our history. And I think that's what we're doing uh, with our pets. And it's such, a, it's such a fascinating subject. Jenny Aaron-Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I, d- I do feel like science is progressively showing us that we're more like other animals than we think. I mean, if you think of, you know, Blue Planet too. Yes, too. There's plastic. that moment... Well, one one of the episodes, yeah, but there's an episode where there's a fish that picks up a rock, no, that uses a rock to smash open a shell, and it's it's a you know it's breathtaking because it's a fish using a tool that does. I mean, it's this humbling thing. I think yeah. this is push and pull. We 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 desire to be you know special and unique and think that we're so much better than all of the other animals, but at the same time, we love to be able to identify human characteristics in in fish. <laughs> To, to think that there is something holding the, us all together. Yeah, and also I think that there's a certain... We think there's a truthfulness in animals because they're acting on instinct and we kind of feel we live in a world where instinct and kind of that sort of honesty, automatic honesty has been removed because we're consciously having to temporise. We're always working out the best way of dealing with the situation. We're so socialised that nothing is really natural. Everything is artificial. And so we have this slightly sort of post-lapsarian feeling, don't we? And animals sort of seem to live in a world before that. So we both want them to be like us and use tools, but also to embody an innocence Mm. that we've kind of lost. Do you not think Biscuit is ever manipulating you with his cuteness? I just think he's too lazy. I mean, the thing I love about Biscuit is he just sleeps and then... (laughs) 
wanders around a bit, then sleeps again. So he has a complete Arcadian life that I just <laughs> I'm just jealous of. I just want I just think his life's amazing. But that's that. Look, that's enough. That's about, what we're all striving for. It is. That's, that's biscuit life. Yeah, that's enough about my inadequacies. <laughs> As anyone who knows me at all will testify, there are two novels I foist upon people in an evangelical fashion. American Tabloid by James Elroy and, which is relevant here, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. The latter is a terrifying, beautiful, unique, sanguinary account of life among the scalp hunters who roamed the US-Mexican border in 1850 in search of Native Americans. You simply must read it. TLS staffer George Berridge has reviewed two books, sadly not by McCarthy, but about him. Books Are Made Out of Books, A Guide to Cormac McCarthy's Literary Influences by Michael Lynn Cruz and Cormac McCarthy and Performance by Stacey Peebles. He joins Thea and me in the studio now. George, hello. Nice to be here. You didn't need to dress up for it. <laughs> well, I did anyway. I thought yeah, I'd make yeah. We're George very is, impressed. George is wearing a, has a suit with a pocket square. Uh, Thea, before we ask, talk to George, what have you read about Cormac McCarthy? I've read everything. Uh... Well, I've only read three novels and I sort of purposefully tried to make them the most different from each other, but you've you've led me to believe that well, I'm wrongly the, thinking that. Say the three. Uh, Blood Meridian, All the Pretty Horses and The Road. OK. George, what do you think? What's, uh, let's talk about McCarthy as a whole before we start talking about those books. Uh, what sort of books does he write? Well, as I uh, say at the start of the piece, uh, when he's making notes for Satri, uh, he references Michel Foucault's uh, Madness and Civilization. I think that actually this works as a pretty good general thematic description of uh, all of McCarthy's works. He describes uh, most of his works consider people pushed to the very fringes of society and considers the conflicts, kind of physical and psychological, that take place there. Yeah. And stylistically, he's kind of unmistakable. He has this uh, huge kind of strange vocabulary that you don't Mm -hmm. find anywhere else. Uh, He has this Spartan kind of approach to punctuation, very rarely uses things like semicolons and uh, quotation marks. And then he has this kind of strange gravity of tone that you don't find in many other authors. And mm. David Foster Wallace once said in an interview that it reminded him of the King James Bible, which I think sums it up quite nicely. Uh, it's probably deliberately so on, on his part. There's a sort of grandiloquence that he's he's going there for. There certainly is. Um, and the Bible certainly plays a heavy influence in the kind of general tone and architecture of his books. So let's talk about his career. What, what, what's the, what's the, the path of it? Because Thea's mentioned, I suppose... Leaving Aside No Country for Old Men, they're probably the three most famous books, Blood Meridian, which is older, uh, All the Pretty Horses, and then The Road, which is relatively recent. It's it's the most recent. I reviewed it for the TLS, actually. You did? Um, What's the course? So his earlier work is is still very violent. It's about very odd people living in rural places like Tennessee. Is it more naturalistic? Is that that what it is? It's certainly more naturalistic. I mean, his very early works are... They're striking straight away, but they are slightly derivative of Faulkner. I think this is a criticism that's quite often made of them. Uh, I think that Outer Dark, actually, which is his second novel, is slightly maligned, but I think it's actually a very, very fine novel. Uh, basically tells the story of uh, two siblings who bear a child through incest, and it's left in the woods. It's a typically dark McCarthy <laughs> story. Yeah. Uh, the mother of the child goes off in search of her child, and the brother kind of roams throughout the country. And... Uh, the whole time they're pursued by these uh, three nameless horsemen uh, who pursue them throughout Tennessee and cause all sorts of havoc and mayhem along the way. Uh, it ends in typical McCarthyist fashion and very darkly. 
Uh, there's no happy ending for anyone. Do any of the novels not have roaming as their kind of central? Well, that's a really good point. This is, and actually when I was kind of thinking about McCarthy as a whole, I, I read a lot of him again last year. Uh, he does have this kind of obsession with uh, roaming and with travelling and with the road as a more general concept. I mean, yeah. you could sum up a few of his books as simply people going from one place to another and then... Being miserable. Being miserable and <laughs> describing the kind of the havoc and trauma forced upon them. But the countryside is important. So... Um, Blood Meridian set on the, the and they're often set in them either in the sort of uh, yeah know, what, he what, has what, yeah, kind of Tennessee but also he goes to he the, has a Tennessee the, period and then he moves after the publication of Sutri which takes place in Knoxville he then moves uh, quite literally he moved uh, down towards uh, New Mexico where he yeah. started writing novels then and so that's where uh, Blood Meridian and the Border Trilogy take place. So the Border Trilogy is all, all the pretty horses um, uh, and then The Crossing the and crossing. then Cities of the Plain um, and they are, I mean, All the Pretty Horses at one level is almost the most straightforward of his it's books, very romantic I think. And, and it's very a guy romantic. a guy who takes a, a horse uh, and he goes roaming around. Uh, he falls in love and get, gets into scrapes. Uh, but the, the landscape is utterly dominant. You just feel like you, I mean, you feel like you want to go there, I, I, I think. that It's amazingly yeah, beautiful, the landscape, and a sense of, of, of the power of mm. nature in that book. He is a brilliant uh, depictor of landscape and of... Uh, as you say, there are times when, uh, especially in the road and things like uh, Blood Murder, where he describes sort of thunder. He has like hundreds of different ways of describing thunder yeah. and the evening reddening and about a hundred different ways to describe the sun setting. And he has this really evocative way of describing sort of caldera and these kind of barren alien landscapes that other authors might have a trouble with since he often describes kind of desolate areas in such great detail. So what are the influences then? This book's about the books that he likes. You mentioned Faulkner, you mentioned the Bible. What else is there that, that shapes him? Well, what really surprised me when I was reading uh, Michael and Cruz's book is how enormously varied these influences are. Uh, in his kind of limited number of interviews that he's ever given, he describes his affection for Melville and Dostoevsky and Flannery O'Connor, authors that you would expect. Yeah. And yet when you read through these notes, it becomes obvious that he's actually a much wider reader than that. There are people like Robert Persig from Zen, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, okay. which bears an influence on uh, The Road, another father-son tale. There's Kierkegaard, there's Camus, there's Kafka, there's Joyce, and he reads kind of all over the place. I was surprised to see Beckett there. Yes, yeah, yeah, Beckett shows up. Uh, there are a few... Oh, see, of... oh, right, see, I'm not so surprised, actually. Well, Especially you've read much influence. more widely, I suppose. And I d also didn't know about the... Um, perhaps it comes into play more with the screenplays and the, the, the theatre work. Uh, yes, perhaps. I mean, the certainly Sartre has a kind of heavy Beckettian element into yeah. it. The large, large parts of it are kind of quite absurd, obviously absurd, and quite hysterical. And I think that Beckett's certainly an influence there. Blood Meridian, I think, is one of the great novels of all time, really, because it's it's beautifully written, it's incredibly violent, it's utterly unlike anything. So at one level, it's a historical novel charting a real-life gang, the Glanton gang, yes, that did exist. Yes, historical. It's kind of based on fact. And at the other, it is this sort of Boschian nightmare of babies being hung up on trees and all sorts of... And it's that, it kind of this weird combination of sort of very naturalistic and also very sort of hellish... It feels very Christian, that sort of very, you know, purgatorial, I suppose. In us. Yeah, the judge. And, and the, the, the fact that the characters, are, you know, the main character is called The Kid, which again yes, the goes through, uh, yeah, uh, through a number of his books, just the same in The Road as The Man. Yes, it's quite the, the yeah. man and the child there. Oh, yes, um, on the Christian, and actually one of the things that was really interesting was how uh, Flaubert's Temptation of St. Anthony, there's a huge chapter in Michael and Cruz's book, talks about how that helped to shape Blood Meridian into this kind of philosophical novel, which it really is. I mean, yeah. I think that 
that might be underplayed when you kind of describe it to friends, but it really is. And it's originally when McCarthy started writing it, it was a very sort of standard Western novel and it slowly changed over the writing years. And books like that, which kind of have a heavy Christian, then there's the kind of Gnostic element to them as well that kind of turned it into this kind of profound philosophical novel. I feel with McCarthy, and I think you see this in the road a lot, that when he's most ambitious, when he's most clutching after grandiloquence, it's often when he's at his worst. I mean, he's very open to parody in the manner a lot of these these write, like Faulkner is hugely open to parody in the same way, that he's so seeking for the sort of the the heavy fall of words. And you can imagine him almost rolling them around his mouth as he, he says them and it's lots of words like intestate and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? I, I kind of feel they can become, and in the road, I think particularly, it, it feels silly in moments. There are moments, certainly. I mean, there's a wonderful paragraph near the start of um, uh, Outer Dark in which he describes uh, the man coming across his uh, baby and falling on the ground like a beleaguered uh, paraclete, beleaguered by all of heaven's clamour. I think that's the right it. And uh, I was thinking just before I came down here, there's an excellent bit that James Woods wrote in his... Uh, essay on McCarthy that he did when No Country for Old Men came out and I'm going to paraphrase him quickly he said that to read Cormac McCarthy is to enter a climate of frustration a good day is so mysteriously followed by a bad one and then he goes on to talk about how McCarthy's a great novelist and how he's wonderful when describing landscape and then a little cruelly but perhaps not unfairly describes him as one of the great hams of American prose yeah, yeah. Uh, which what a little unfair there's probably a germ of truth in there Talk about, let's talk about how his films of his books have fared, because the second book's about him in, in performance. Uh, how's he done when the movies have come calling? Well, adaptations are, are sadly a bit of a mixed bag for him. Um, so, namely, there's Billy Bob Thornton's uh, All the Pretty Horses, which starred uh, Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz, and it's uh, Is that really rubbish? quite it, it rambling. It feels rubbish. Like All the Pretty Horses, did yeah. you say? Sure. Yeah. It is, it is, it is not rubbish. a good film. Yeah, it's, it's really rubbish. And it was intended to be... Uh, when they were talking about the production studies of it, it was intended to be sort of like a three, four hour long film. And then it got really hacked to death by the... Uh, Thank God for uh, that. Production company. Yes, and yes, and there's a, I mean, the version of it as is uh, really isn't too good. And then there's James Franco's very lacklustre take on uh, Child of God, which really falls apart and never really goes anywhere. Uh, the Road, I think, though, was quite a lot better. I mean, it's this not... It's Viggo Mortensen, isn't it? That's right, yeah. it's Viggo Mortensen. It's, uh, it's very good. And I think that what it does quite well is bring to life that very grey and yeah. godless landscape that he describes. I mean, there's that wonderful phrase in McCarthy where he describes the salator drying from the earth, a kind of quite literally the spirit of God rising out of the dirt, which I think is quite wonderful. And No Country for Old Men is, oh, yeah, which is a, good. it's a hack book. I mean, it's, it's his most obvious genre novel. It's a real thriller and yep. therefore it feels like it, it can become a genre film. Well, one of the interesting things is that No Country for Old Men began life as a screenplay, as did uh, Cities of the Plain. And it's uh, by far, I think, McCarthy's weakest novel. Uh, I think that it's almost forgettable. I think that it's kind of, you know, there's, there are the typical elements of McCarthy there which kind of shine through occasionally. Good but baddie. Good baddie. And so uh, the Coen brothers, I think, did it a real service. They turned it into this really superb film and it has the kind of accolades to show for that. But it is worth seeing uh, simply for the haircut that they gave to uh, Javier Bardem's Anton Sugar, the kind of menacing villain who's who the follows. Baddie? Who's the baddie? Who's the baddie? And who they give this strange, sleek bob cut to. Uh, <laughs> Vidal Sassoon. Yes, exactly. And it's, uh, it's really hey, quite strange to see on him, but it's certainly worth watching. Uh, and just finally, George, should we be clamouring for a film of Blood Meridian? Well, I discussed this with uh, Thea at the TLS Christmas party. There's what, been a, what, was, what was the verdict? Was well, there a consensus? So there's been a long history of trying to turn Blood Meridian into a film. 
Lots of them have fallen through. Most recently, the serial uh, Cormac McCarthy bother of James Franco. Uh, James Franco. <laughs> uh, I don't get a new life for James Franco, do you? So James Franco not only directed that terrible uh, Child of God, but he also then went and ruined two of my favourite books, uh, As I Lay Dying and The Sound of the Fury, both Faulkner adaptations, and they're both terrible. He's very proud of having a library card, basically, isn't he, James Franco? Oh, he's Franco. so very proud. Um, and yet, so he was recently attached to... Blood Meridian, but that appears to have fallen through. But one of the interesting things that came out of all of that, actually, was uh, casting options. And so they decided that uh, Russell Crowe might play Glanton, which you can see working. Yeah. And then most interestingly, I thought, was Vincent D'Onofrio, who most people might not know, but he plays in the Marvel adaptations of Kingpin and the Punisher and in an enormous, bold, muscled, yeah. genius-level intellect who's a murderer... In Is the he form completely of the hairless? Com- almost completely hairless. <laughs> and so he fits the character of the judge really perfectly and he plays that part really well. So when it comes to Blood Meridian, I was kind of talking about this with Thea and I think that if it's going to happen, it can only happen if Paul Thomas Anderson makes it. He of <laughs> There Will Be Blood and <laughs> Phantom Thread. I think that, Come on, Paul Thomas I Anderson. I think that he would do just such a superb <laughs> job. It would be so difficult to paint that landscape and depict that huge level of violence that kind of stomach churning violence yeah. properly and artistically so go Paul Thomas Anderson and just keep James Franco away from it I hope he doesn't do it <laughs> George Burris thank you very much indeed thank you if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Sometime in the early 2000s, possibly earlier, the literary world started to change in new ways, by turns exciting and worrying. 
many a piece has been written in print and ironically online about how the internet, and specifically literary blogs, or lit blogs, if you can bear it, killed their print predecessors, the pull-out book sections of newspapers, and indeed whole literary reviews. But what we have perhaps been missing is a more nuanced appraisal of this brave, now-not-so-new world. The Digital Critic, Literary Culture Online, a new collection of essays printed on paper, in a book, attempts such a stock-taking. And Jennifer Howard, who experienced the arrival of lit blogs firsthand and who we gather from her review in this week's TLS has more recently undergone something of a shift in perspective, joins us on the line to discuss. Jennifer, hello. Hi, Thea. The personal shift I mentioned just now, that begins with you working on the book section of the Washington Post, I think. What... What was your initial assessment there of online literary culture as it encroached? Well, when I first saw lit blogs, I was both intrigued because they were very good sources of fresh um, perspectives and news on books, which was part of my job, as it was to collect that kind of information, but also kind of uh, put off by some of the impromptu tone, um, what looked to me like log rolling, which of course is an ancient literary tradition, <laughs> but seemed particularly <laughs> particularly prevalent among some of the lit bloggers who were very chummy and would give each other shout outs online. And I thought, oh God, this is really, you know, this is just looks incestuous and too cute, um, kind of an all the feels, you know, literary approach. Um, but it looks different to me now. That's that it, at the time it seemed not as serious as I think it turned out to be. And so what what changed your opinion? Was it a sort of a decisive moment or a slow coming together? It was more of a slow coming together. And I think uh, lit blogs and the people running them also matured as critics and as writers and as editors. And they got into the business in part, I think, to challenge the gatekeepers and to uh, offer an alternative to the kinds of book sections that I was used to working for and, and knew as the main vehicle for literary conversation. Uh, so these these folks, I think, sometimes felt shut out. Uh, they wanted something less stodgy. They wanted a better diversity of voices. And they, they couldn't find those outlets, so they created them. And that, that set of conversations and connections and relationships has has expanded and extended and found some interesting intersections with more traditional print-based media. Is there an economy that supports it, Jennifer? Because uh, one of the issues everyone has to tackle in, in the world of journalism especially online journalism, where advertising doesn't seem to be uh, coming to the rescue. Is there, is, there, is there a world in which there isn't, there isn't economic backing to lit blogs? It really depends. I think there is. And I, and I haven't made a study of their economic models, but there are sites like uh, Book Riot and Lit Hub uh, that have, have advertising. Uh, it is, I think there are some models. I doubt very many people, if anybody is getting rich, uh, are getting rich off this. But there, are, you know, there are some there are some revenue streams, is my understanding. And Again, they, I've not made a study of that. But they can pay. I mean, the part I guess but, the real, I mean, the only reason that matters is can they pay? Is there a world in which people are getting paid to write this stuff, or do you think a lot of it is done by people who are doing it for goodwill or doing it for exposure? Is obviously the great thing sure. that people say. Yes, I mean, I think I think a lot of it is done for love, not money, which is also true of print-based reviewing. Indeed, indeed. Um, but uh, people are often happy with a with a modest fee, you know, to get fifty bucks for a book review is is fine for a lot of people, or at least at least they're willing to do it. Um, some of these sites can pay, many can't. Uh, it really, but I, again, I think people are doing it for the money. And is is the complaint about superabundance now on this, you know, this this online world? We're just overwhelmed by content, and content is the word most often used. Is that is that simply not a valid complaint? 
<laughs> well, I, I think we're all drowning in information, whether it's literary news, book chat, something else. Uh, on the other hand, it, you can also look at, at it as uh, an embarrassment of riches. You know, there is great writing out there. There is great uh, content of its literary, you know, literary news, literary interpretation. Um, there's an essay in the book that talks about the online world as a vehicle for literary theory, um, which had grown kind of moribund in many ways. You know, so there, there is something for everybody out there, and there are a lot of people who are eager to help you find the thing for you. It's, uh, sometimes it seems like a problem. I think it's actually not a bad problem to have. And the essays collected in, in this collection, the digital critic, do they, do they represent the full range of experience, the good, bad, the in-between, or, or is it all very much a, a celebration of online literary culture? No, they're, they're actually quite. There, there are, are several essays that address the the downsides, the the omissions, the uh, well, the, the problem of abundance and how you find things, um, the quick pace of online commentary, which can elide deep thinking and the kind of um, thoughtful criticism that you might go to the TLS for, for example. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of that the pace of being online and writing online and the hunger for content, the kind of the feed the beast mentality can really undercut some good criticism. Um, there are people, you know, there's a fragmentation uh, because there are so many places to go online. You may miss important or interesting things because you just kind of go around your, your little circuit of, of websites that, that you know. And there's one essay that talks about scandal and literary um couple of poetry scandals that kind of took off online and maybe took off too quickly so that the, the, the kinds of interpretation and context that we might have wanted were not included in that literary commentary. It's, I was thinking, it's a quick take that, you know. Mm, I was thinking about slide. naming uh, Elena Ferrante. It was interesting that the, the New York Review of Books did it online. They didn't do it in the paper. And you can mm-hmm, imagine there's a mm-hmm. different there's a different set of standards operating often online. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it's probably a different attitude to things like if we know the name of Elena Ferrante, we should publish it. But interesting that they did it online yes. rather than in a paper. Yes. I wonder if there's and maybe you could speak to this more as an, as an editor than I could. But I wonder if there's a, a sense that editors may take a risk of putting something online that they might feel a little bit ashamed about running in the print version. If there is still a print version, of course, in many cases, there's not. But there's a sense of, well, it's online, so the rules are a little looser and we can just, you know, we can float this and see what happens. Yeah, I think the, I think the flyer aspect of online is is definitely there because things get sort of fixed into, into print. Is the upside here, though, diversity? You mentioned that at the very beginning. Has that been true that, you know, uh, uh, these traditional magazines and book sections can often be ossified into the same group of elderly white men talking uh, about stuff uh, is that been completely yes. fractured by the online world because it's based on based on a much broader source of people i wish i could say it had been completely fractured i, th- I think it's certainly been been fractured and and you know that people argue can create opportunities and find connections that will open doors for them online who might not have been able to um break into a print section of a traditional newspaper like the Washington Post back in the day. Um, I was very, really struck by, in, 15 years ago by the rise of female voices in the lit blogging community. A lot of the, the really the real powerhouse bloggers were female, which was great. I mean, my, my book section had one female columnist, I think, but, yeah. but you know, there was, as you said, the older white, white men really still ruled the roost, and that uh, blogs really helped. Um, but you know, publishing is still still has a diversity problem, and and uh, maybe it's easier online to to find your platform and your niche. But 
you know, these problems, some of the print problems have not entirely vanished online. Jennifer Howard, thank you so much mm. indeed. It's interesting that, that you'd have thought, I bet it's much better. Although uh, I was looking today, May, the March issues of the TLS, because we've now plotted all of them, have more women than men writing over the course of the month, there are more women in the TLS than in the men, which I suspect for a month must be the first time that's happened in 116... Since 1902. Since 1902. So I I think think that things can change even in traditional print, but I wonder whether... I bet you find this, because you commission really widely, you must look at online sources to get new names, to get new voices. That must be... It's a good calling card, isn't it? I know that's not... It shouldn't be in place of payment, but... It is, and that it does exist as a thing. Well, that's sort of why I wonder. Um, there's a line that that Jennifer quotes. Um, it's it's from an essay by Scott Esposito in in this this volume here, and he says running a lit blog allowed him, uh, and this is a quote, to become known to people of power and influence, some of whom down the line would be in a position to open doors for me. So I that makes me wonder whether, in fact, online literary culture is just, to a degree, perhaps yes, it's it's blowing open new doors. But to a degree, it is also just a, a supplementary, a new first step. And you have to, you know, sort out your literary presence and gather your following before you then end up going to the same doors to knock. And the question whether those doors actually remain open anyway, because the problem there is for everyone is that if it's just a calling card and it doesn't really mm. live in its own merits, those places which you might want to get to may disintegrate anyway. So book sections shrink or mm. close whole magazines close mm. the worry would be that there's nowhere to get to it's a good mm. it's a good first step but the road takes you nowhere yeah exactly and 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 the money thing is is a real genuine issue because you know otherwise you have everyone doing it as a labor of love or because it's interesting but that is only going to limit the the, the number of people the diversity of people yeah. who can do it it's only the people who have by whatever means the support system behind them to allow them to spend a day writing a piece that maybe no one will read yeah uh, but they can tweet it yeah it's so, not ugh. it's not entirely happy news no I don't I don't think it is oh, <laughs> surprisingly so, uh, yeah. yet again <laughs> this podcast ends on a gloomy note <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Thank you, Thea. (laughs) Our thanks actually go to Jennifer Howard, George Berridge and Jenny Erin-Smith. Do pick up a copy of the paper, which still exists. Hooray! Or subscribe online. Simply Google TLS subscriptions and type POD1 into the offer code section. You see, if you pay for the journalism, we might be able to carry on going. This week, we have lots of good stuff on film and the performing arts and a little bit, sad to say, on Brexit. And interesting, we're talking about the history of all this. Next week, we will be commemorating the 6,000th edition of the TLS, which started in 1902, and we're going to exhume the bodies of Virginia Woolf and Henry James, especially in honour of the occasion. We're not really. We're going to do something... Penguins are coming to Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> we're going to do something more salubrious than that. We'll work out something over the next week. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 